This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Adapting a movie into an adventure. A tour of my ancestral homeland. Keith Baker. And the Walmart closing conspiracy. Gasoline, hang gliders, marshmallows, spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show. Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school. Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider. Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one. The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose. Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico. And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too. Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.? Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too. Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen. And then the TA picks a winner. And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free. Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts? If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin dash msu. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin dash m like Mike, s like sugar, u like union. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, that's the way to do it. The clatter of dice, the thump of miniatures, the slurp of borscht tell us we have entered a Russophile segment of the gaming hut. And by Russophile, I mean exploiting the Russians in every imaginable way, because today we are going to be adapting a work to a scenario, much as uh, someone might adapt, say, Dracula to a scenario. But in this case, it's a different work, although one still festooned with Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. Robin, do you want to introduce to us what we are introducing to our beloved audience? So a while back at CthulhuCon, uh, we had a panel about Hammer Films and the Cthulhu Mythos, and uh, mentioned prominently thereon uh, was uh, something that's not technically a Hammer film, but definitely has a Hammer vibe, since, as you suggest, it has Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing in it. Uh, It's a film from 1972 called Horror Express. Uh, It's by a Spanish director named Eugenio Martin, and has this sort of... uh, uh, partial euro pudding quality uh, but also <laughs> something of a uh, uh, hammer vibe and uh, both you and even more so scott glancy were praising this uh, film to the skies and i kind of remembered very dimly 
seeing a bunch of it uh, many years ago and thinking it was pants. So I <laughs> dialed it on up. I'm not going to say you're wrong. Yeah. So uh, I, I was expecting something, uh, particularly from what Scott was saying, that was genuinely terrifying. But what it is, it's, it's very entertaining, but terrifying uh, rather than sort of campily tongue-in-cheek and fun is perhaps what I would say. And conveniently enough, it seems to be in the public domain because internetarchive.org wouldn't steer us wrong on that account. Surely not. And therefore, it's easy enough to dial up and take a look at yourself. And also because it's in the public domain, I thought it would make a great case for us to look at a film and think about ways to adapt it for a gaming scenario. Now, Ken, do you remember this uh, well enough to briefly encapsulate its wonders for the audience? I think I do. It begins, and again, um, if you haven't heard the Cthulhu Con segment, go back and listen to Scott uh, dilate uh, frenetically upon it, because he loves this movie um, as uh, the Inquisition loves sin. But right. anyway, and by segment, you're referring actually to the episode of the Monster Radio podcast that I yes, used this right. as it, it's... Uh, an episode. We didn't actually exactly. have it on the show. Right. No, we did not do it on ours, but maybe we'll put a link in the show notes to that. Anyhow, um, this involves Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing as rival anthropologists, and they are traveling on the Trans-Siberian Express back from uh, Manchuria to Moscow. And in a crate in the baggage car is a frozen ape man that uh, Christopher Lee has dug out of the Mongolian or Manchurian tundra. And whether it's a frozen ape man or a fossil that turn, then just turns into an ape man is not altogether clear. <laughs> well, um, if we stop if we stop for everything that is not altogether clear, we are going to be here all day. Um, Anyhow, there's a mysterious dead guy with his eyes uh, all, all milky over like cataracts. And we don't know what that's about, and I don't think it actually makes any sense. Either. Not just milky over, but milky over and bleeding. And bleeding. Um, and so uh, there is also a, a priest, uh, Father Pujardov, who is there, um, and he's a spiritual advisor to a Polish count and countess. Um, and he says that the crate is an evil crate. Um, and so during the uh, excitement, uh, Peter Cushing pays off a, 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 an attendant to go uh, look in the crate and see what his rival Christopher Lee has got. And of course, once you start looking in crates, you're, you're a dead man. The, uh, the, the ape man, uh, kills the porter and then he escapes and he starts roaming around the train, killing people and draining out their, uh, their, their, their eye fluid and then leaving them with their, their creepy little white eyes. And eventually we discover somehow that, uh, their brains have been also drained of memories and knowledge. So the ape man is drinking their knowledge, which, and so far, this is already great. This is enough movie. This is all the movie you would want, yeah. I feel. This is just act one. Yeah. And then a police inspector who is also on the train, Inspector Mirov, guns the thing down. Um, they do uh, some uh, photography of the fluid in the eyeball somehow. I forget exactly how that works. Uh, maybe in microscopes. And uh, they discover... Yeah, it, is, it is a microscope and, and science. And science. Microscope plus science equals a vision of the prehistoric Earth and the planet from space. So they know that somehow that the uh, uh, real problem was not a murderous ape man, but the space alien who had possessed the murderous ape man and was now possessing people on the train, uh, which is several jumps of logic, but it turns out to be true. Yes. 
the the alien has been lodged in the fossil and or ape man uh, like a uh, syphilis spirochete. Mm-hmm. And it now lives inside the, ins- the inspector. And uh, Father Pujardov, of course, uh, changes sides immediately and pledges allegiance to Satan. The Russians are told about all these murders, the Russian authorities. And so a Cossack officer played by Telly Savalas uh, boards the train with a bunch of Cossacks because <laughs> someone was going through their nerd trope cards and saying, oh, I know, Cossacks. And right. So they they put those guys on. And, and it's an occasion for the best uh, line in the film, which is uh, an angry aristocrat. I think the Polish guy says, uh, I'll have you sent to Siberia, to which the <laughs> Polish Valis character advice, this is Siberia. <laughs> So, um, uh, so anyway, they, they somehow, uh, convince, uh, the Tully Savalas that there is an alien amongst them and, uh, that the alien is trying to drink everybody's, uh, brains so that it can learn enough about our new society. And then it, uh, figures out that if it drinks the Count's brain, he turns out to be a prominent metallurgist because that happens a lot. And, uh, with that, he can build a spacecraft to escape the earth. And, um, uh, there's a uh, gunplay. The alien goes to, uh, possess the priest now, uh, after the, uh, inspector gets killed. Uh, everyone is, is running around. The, the alien is killing people. It's then eventually. It's the same plot as I E.T., really. Yeah. <laughs> fundamentally. Yeah. Uh, one, fewer, a little less candy and a train instead of a bicycle, but it's basically the same plot. Um, so the, uh, so the alien tries to seduce Christopher Lee by promising him advanced technology and cures for all diseases and uh, that uh, distracts Christopher Lee long enough that the creature can suddenly uh, activate a new power that it got two-thirds of the way through the film and make zombies. And so everyone that it killed starts rising up as zombies and uh, attacking everybody. And so the the few living passengers, including the Countess, not the Count, the Count is dead, um, flee back into the caboose and... Uh, they wire ahead to have the Russian government switch the train onto a dead-end track uh, so as to uh, stop the creature from getting to Moscow and, and getting away. Uh, and they're trying to loosen the caboose from the train, and the train goes over the convenient crevasse in the Siberia and falls down the immense cliff and explodes, and one assumes kills the alien by because the alien, it turns out, doesn't like bright light, another thing that we discovered about two-thirds of the way through the film. And our heroes, of course, uh, come clattering to the edge of the crevasse, but do not topple off. And uh, at this point, uh, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee promise to be besties forever and never, ever let their rivalry let horrible aliens kill everyone on a train again. Now, if this seems somewhat familiar to you, uh, first of all, there was a <laughs> uh, episode of Doctor Who this year that very clearly uh, tipped its hat to this. And uh, Horror on the Ori Express, the classic Cthulhu uh, boxed uh, campaign, uh, presumably has some sort of nod uh, to it in it. Do you remember how uh, closely inspired that is by this? Horror on the Orient Express, I think, is somewhat inspired by this, but I don't think it's a direct inspiration. I think that that would be one of the ingredients that... uh, I think that horror was a Keith Herber um, uh, inspiration uh, way back in the day, and so I think he probably took some of that some of the um, Agatha Christie, everyone on the train is a murderer, and a lot just from the sort of nature of the cities that the train would travel through. Right. So uh, that's good news, because that means this segment hasn't already been uh, realized uh, 25 <laughs> years ago. Well, I mean, a, a disturbing artifact is not the same thing as a possessing alien, and I think we can all agree on that. Right. Uh, so the first question uh, as we look to adapt this is the traditional issue of 
dealing with uh, taking a couple of protagonists in this case and expanding it outwards into um, a party of investigators. And you could take pretty direct inspiration from characters who wind up sort of as cannon fodder and get uh, either uh, zombified or eaten by the uh, their brain sucked out by the alien or both. And that can just be, you could assume, oh, well, it's a con run. And then partway through, uh, player characters will start to uh, die off. And it has already that great mechanic where the uh, once you die in the game, you, you just switch sides so that you become uh, part of the menace. And how directly do we want to adapt this? Do we want to use the uh, particular characters and names, or do we want to use this as sort of an inspiration uh, point, even though it's in the public domain? Well, I mean, for me, the whole point of taking something in the public domain is to use as many of the characters and uh, incidents as you possibly can, because that's what adds the fun. I mean, when I'm when we do the Dracula dossier, we're not uh, part of what we do is we lean into familiar names and familiar concepts. I don't know how you know much uh, uh, noose. Uh, you get from saying Professor Alexander Saxton because no one remembers the character name. They just remember that oh, that was Christopher Lee. So I think that you could use it or you could change it up and say instead of Alexander Saxton and uh, Peter Cushing playing Dr. Wells, you've got two other, you know, you could you could pick two other anthropologists. You could move into the 20s and make one of them Roy Chapman Andrews and another one, you know, a, uh, a Soviet anthropologist, maybe. So do we want to uh, stick with the uh, replicating the action of the movie, or do we want to have a possible sequel? Because, uh, as you suggest, at the end, uh, the problem is solved by having a train go over a cliff, but the enemy is a spirochete. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it doesn't uh, take a lot of effort to figure out how to do a sequel with that. Someone just has to, uh, one of the people who has to come and clean up the wreckage gets the alien uh, creature in them, and then they're uh, off to Moscow or whatever, and you can have a sequel where this is rampaging through Moscow. Or do we want to keep the train atmosphere? I think that we should leave ourselves open to a sequel because that can be a fun thing for this is you'd watch the movie at the, you know, during the session where you're all making up characters anyway, and you say, all right, now you're making up characters in 19, that are in 1944 in Russia. And, you know, that's all you tell them. And they might be American airmen. They might be, you know, British technical advisors. They might be NKVD guys. They might be, you know, Red Army dudes. They might be, you know, the ambassador from China. Who knows who they might be? And you could still keep it as the, as the train episode. You know, you're on the Trans-Siberian running from Vladivostok to Moscow. It's 1944. There's Nazi spies everywhere. We don't know what's going on. And there's NKVD spies everywhere. We don't know what's going on. And then they know that they're on a Trans-Siberian train. Something is happening and it's got to be connected to that horrible story. And you immediately begin with people suspecting everybody of being possessed by aliens, which I think is, you know, it's a great way to sort of set that mode. And that way you don't have to worry that people won't recognize the name Alexander Saxton because they've already watched the movie. They know that Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing barely defeated this long ago. And you can have one of the characters early on have a report that they've been salvaging metals for the war effort. And they've finally gotten to this train crash from 1906. And then they're like, oh, yeah, that's not good at all. And maybe one of the characters is 
uh, since he's he, maybe he's a British technical advisor and he's Alexander Saxton's son or something. And you say, okay, you are Christopher Lee, but you're playing your son of Christopher Lee or you're Peter Cushing and playing Peter Cushing's son. Right. And it could be as, as simple a matter as the train itself. Uh, obviously, there would have been a lot of blood spatter when the train went mm-hmm. over the uh, cliff the first time. And if they've salvaged parts and put them back into a new train, as uh, you did during the desperate uh, days of World War II in the Soviet Union. There's enough, uh, you know, DNA somewhere that the uh, alien parasite is there. So we start the scenario. Everybody's uh, together on the train. You kind of introduce each other. You uh, perhaps have little vignettes where you give secondary goals to the player characters so that there's something each of them wants from another of the characters so they have reason to interact beforehand. And then I guess this gets us into this sort of a ticking body count style scenario where initially you have no reason to act until somebody is possessed and goes crazy. And how do you then proceed to develop this into a a fun series of scenes that give the player something active to do rather than just uh, waiting for the next kill? Well, like you say, you start out with them having agendas and you see the fact that maybe there's a Nazi on the train trying to get a sample of this same DNA for, you know, the Ananerba's secret occult alien biowarfare program. And so you, you start by hunting the Nazi. And then as you hunt the Nazi, you realize that someone who is hunting the Nazi with you, maybe that helpful, um, uh, NKVD guy, or maybe one of the train officials is, seems a little weird. And then you find a dead body with the, with the white eyes. And that, starts you off saying, all right, now we're hunting two things. So you begin with a Nazi hunt, then you're hunting a Nazi and an alien, and maybe the Nazi is the alien, maybe the Nazi isn't the alien. We don't know, but we suspect that if the Nazi gets to the alien, he's got to have some sort of on an airbo way to control it, right? And so now it's like, oh, we have to work with this Nazi. We can't just kill him like we ought to. And the NKVD, if they get him, they'll torture him, and they'll get all of his alien biowarfare secrets out and as American or, or Western players, we're probably not real happy with the idea of Stalin having this thing working for it either. So there's sort of a lot of different agendas going on. And, you know, maybe there are people who have been just freed from the gulag who are writing back with you and they you know, might be the kinds of guys who are like, no, we can't let Stalin have this. You don't know what he's like and, and whatever. You can have all kinds of, of stuff going on as you do the hunt. And then once you find that first uh, white eye corpse that you can just be some train employee NPC guy, the porter uh, type fellow, then um, then you can start hunting him through the train. And once they start hunting him, you, the GM, I think, start using the alien's powers that you know about to start messing with the players. And you just mentally say, the alien can be any of these four guys, and you just hop him around between the bodies as the players start eliminating uh, suspects, either uh, <laughs> deductively or in more Soviet fashion. Right. Having all the players together, player characters together on a train means that it's inherently sort of a bottle episode where they're all kind of trapped. And so you want to counter that by making sure that the adventure is not written as a series of events that have to happen, but a series of possibilities that may or may not happen in reaction to whatever it is that the players uh, choose to do. And uh, you might add a dimension where the players, uh, just as Lee and Cushing in the film, don't start out as allies or kind of antagonists that you have to mechanically earn the right to cooperate that Mm -hmm. there are certain number of things that need to happen to you until you can then uh, make an alliance with another character so that that creates a sort of a uh, 
level of political play where you're trying to maneuver yourself into, uh, you know, you can't get, uh, and you can't ally and cooperate with the player sitting to your left until you, uh, gain one of three bits of information. And then once you gain those bits of information, it's acceptable for you to uh, get together and, and do things and team up. I, and I guess the other question then, if it's a fairly contingent uh, scenario where it depends uh, its possibilities in reaction to what players do, that you can still sort of work toward a third act twist. And in this case, since we've established that the creature absorbs people's memories and wants to use those to leapfrog and become a sort of a combination of everybody's memories and use that to get back into space, you can then discover at the third act that it's taken over either a Soviet or a Nazi official. And now the creature wants to go back to either uh, Moscow or Berlin and take over and become, uh, you know, and uh, take over Stalin or take over Hitler because they would both have the uh, wherewithal to build his spaceship to get him uh, onto space. And that um, seems like a good thing, except, of course, that this alien is also a homicidal maniac and would uh, slaughter uh, additional millions in order to uh, achieve that or might just decide to rule the world for a while while that's happening. So, that Or it might, instead of building a spaceship, it might say, well, now that you guys have invented uh, radio and television, I'm just going to build a giant radio telescope and tell all of my friends that there's this great deli tray uh, orbiting this yellow star over here, and everyone should come on out. And so that could be the, sort of the final twist where you have to, and now you know that the alien has come back another way, and you have the... I guess the final thing would be finding a way to permanently destroy it. And uh, obviously just chucking it over a cliff in a train isn't going to be enough. Yeah, I think that what you have to do is you have to um, go and uh, hijack the Soviet or Nazi uh, nuclear bomb program and, uh, you know, destroy it in an A-bomb in 1944. I think that's the way you end a proper Horror Express tribute uh, with this. Is it has to be some sort of uh, on an atomic level? It has to be dispersed. You can't just set it on fire. And well, since we've gotten to the ending of Horror Express, we've gotten to the end of this segment. When one of us goes away on a little jaunt, he comes back with a travel advisory, in this case, uh, Ken uh, jaunted to his ancestral homeland of Oklahoma City and is going to uh, try and convince us that Oklahoma City has... Uh, well, actually, this is the point where I was going to start making fun of Oklahoma City, but as we record this, Oklahoma is being uh, hit by some rather devastating floods, so that sort of takes the, the fun out of that. So, Ken, why don't you just sort of give us a, a tour of uh, the sear urban landscape that uh, that yielded a young Ken Height, uh, starting with the Oklahoma City Museum of Art. Uh, what does the uh, dedicated traveler who finds himself, uh, for some reason, in Oklahoma City going to find there? Uh, at the Oklahoma City Museum of Art, uh, the main reason to go is not the perfectly nice uh, collection of sort of uh, second-rate uh, old masters, and it's the sort of thing where the, the museum only got founded in 1945, so its collection is 
it doesn't really have a jump on a lot of the other uh, great museums, even in the Midwest. Uh, you know, Kansas City has a great art museum, for example. They've got like one Renoir that's that's very nice. Right, because um, all of the even relatively small American cities tend to have great museums because uh, the rich people in every city were on a collecting spree and managed to uh, scoop up a bunch of uh, uh, European masterworks and were often ahead of the curve on everyone after the Impressionists. So you yeah. can often get a really startlingly great uh, collection, even in, say, Milwaukee or Indianapolis. Yeah. But Oklahoma City has a couple of problems. First, that a lot of the rich people kept the art because they were all oil millionaires. They didn't so much donate it, or they donated it to the museum in Tulsa or to the museum in Bartlesville, which for a while was the town in America with the largest per capita population of millionaires and is still a very great place to go if you're, you know, they have a great symphony and all kinds of, of stuff for a little tiny town that exists because oil millionaires live there. But Oklahoma City's Museum of Art has, if you are a fan of the art of Dale Chihuly, it has one of the biggest uh, collections of his work, and it is worth seeing, uh, I think, pretty much for that, if you're a Chihuly fan alone. Right, so he's the, the well-known uh, glass artist who does these sort of uh, biomorphic, uh, really colorful forms and uh, kind of chandelier-like uh, uh, structures, uh, some of them, uh, and a lot of them have a kind of an aquatic uh, feel to them, so uh, mm-hmm. some of them have tentacles. Yes, there. It is. It is a strongly Lovecraftian or Lovecraftian-inducing uh, art form, anyway. And Chihuly's stuff very much looks like sort of Burgess Shale entities in glass. Uh, there's one uh, piece that is a, a boat full of spheres and another boat full of crazy tentacled, explodey orchid faces. And it, if we could afford the usage rights. There's a couple of still images from that collection that would make the greatest uh, uh, Cthulhu covers of all time, but I'll bet you can't afford the image rights. There's also some photography that's that's very nice. They they do some pretty good photography exhibits. Uh, and again, it's not uh, you know without anything. They've got a Charles Wilson Peale painting of George Washington. There's a Georgia O'Keeffe flower. Uh, it's you know it's a small museum in that way, but it also gets a lot of really interesting exhibits to travel through because now uh, the rich people in Oklahoma. Oklahoma City are putting money into the museum so they can bring some pretty decent exhibits. When I was there several years ago, there was a really good exhibit of Charles Rennie Macintosh uh, designs and architectural features and, and sort of um, decor- decorative finials and things like that. The, a lot of Macintosh designs. Right. He was sort of the pre-deco uh, cabinet maker and uh, calligrapher and uh, his, architect. Yes, he sort of bridges uh, nouveau and deco and it has a really great uh, sort of sense of line and all of this stuff. And it was also very interesting to compare him to Frank Lloyd Wright because they both had a lot of similar sort of aesthetic beliefs, but one of them was in Glasgow and one of them was in, you know, uh, the Midwest. And so they're, they're sort of the way that their art developed is very much differentiated by their surroundings. Uh, so that Macintosh show was really good. They had a, a show of, um, of, of Brock that was there uh, that same year. They've had Etruscan art. So, what you want to do is do what I did not do and go when they have a really good collection uh, coming in. I just missed the forgery exhibit where they had a bunch of great American forgers uh, uh, work that has gone away. And then they were bringing in a Fabergé egg collection that was going to be great. But uh, so if you if you go to your Oklahoma City Museum of Art, um, uh, you do that. Uh, 
while they have a good collection in, as opposed to just while your mother is having her 80th birthday. Um, and I recommend that. I will also say before we uh, continue, well, I'm sure no one controls the circumstances under which they wind up in Oklahoma City. I, I think some people do. Um, uh, other people, of course, find themselves washed up there by uh, the vicissitudes of fate, as you suggest. Um, I, if you have a couple of million dollars lying around and you are of a real estate development mind, I think you might want to uh, hire yourself to Oklahoma City now rather than later, because the city is really uh, engaged in a pretty serious build out of its uh, downtown and its old um, uh, office buildings and its old um, warehouses and things like that. So the new urbanism is now hitting the archetypal Sunbelt City, and the results are really kind of fascinating to watch just as a fan of urban development, but I suspect they're even more fun to watch if you've got a couple of million dollars and have bought some great waste of space in Old Britain or the or the uh, near northeast side, and you can suddenly turn that into art galleries and uh, liquor stores and all manner of civilized appurtenances, as opposed to empty uh, buildings with nothing going on, which is what it was through my entire childhood. So what is it that makes it an archetypal Sunbelt City? It's an archetypal Sunbelt City because it is very much a creation of the car era and of the air conditioning era. So the streets are wide uh, for lots of car traffic. The buildings are sort of post-1920s. They're, they're all built with a response to modernism, even though they're not uh, modernist, but there's a lot of, a lot of the old stuff is sort of the, the 20s prairie gothic and prairie deco that you see, uh, people, um, using when they build with limestone and things like that. Uh, there's also, of course, as a Sunbelt city, it has its own little pocket of, uh, corruption and its own little pocket of society because it's built to be the only place in the whole state where anything matters. And in Oklahoma City, that's slightly uh, differentiated because Tulsa is actually an older city. And f- as late as 1927, there was no paved road between Oklahoma City and Tulsa. So they were sort of capitals of their own separate half states. But uh, it, it's very it, it's very insular in a lot of ways because everything outside of it is rural Oklahoma, which um, is even more sere and, uh, and devastated. Um and then, of course, it's also just got that sort of very post 1920s civic governance. It, it's it, it's too uh, too young a city to have a machine based on immigrant population. The big immigrant populations in Oklahoma City are the Mexican population, which of course have been you know never allowed anywhere near the levers of power, and the uh, Vietnamese population, which came in as refugees after the war. Oklahoma City was one of the major Vietnamese resettlers, but pretty much it was all. Uh, straightforward Anglos, and so rather than having an urban political machine, it's a bunch of businessmen and newspaper owners that run the city. In, and so in that way, it's very similar to Las Vegas, it's very similar to Dallas, it's very similar to even Los Angeles, um, which is much older, but winds up being built on that Sunbelt system. Right. And certainly Los Angeles was at that point until about the 40s. Yeah. Um, and so the uh, and so the, the sort of the way of civic governance and civic operation was also very much a Sunbelt city. There's a great uh, Ross Thomas novel. Uh, they're all great. But they're the one called Briar Patch, I was reading and discovered to my delight about a quarter of the way into it that the, his quote unquote Sunbelt City, the uh, city in which that, that novel takes place, was actually Oklahoma City and was very clearly Oklahoma City if you knew anything about the city and had grown up there. And so that made that 
novel even more exciting uh, for me as a as a Ross Thomas fan. So I recommend reading Briar Patch. Right. Uh, what's going to try and steer us away from the uh, <laughs> uh, museums on the list toward the idea of what an Oklahoma noir would be? But it turns out Ross Thomas has answered that question. So what would <laughs> Oklahoma City horror be? How would you draw on your homeland for terror the way that uh, Lovecraft uh, did with uh, Providence and New England? Well, Lovecraft actually wrote uh, a story or two set in Oklahoma. The Yig Cycle, Curse of Yig, and the Mound are set in Oklahoma, in Binger, Oklahoma, which does not actually have a mound, but there are mounds elsewhere in the state uh, that you could use. I think Oklahoma City is one of those places where you could take the... Um, uh, the, that, that very much that sense of being a transient on the land and compare and contrast that to the old powers of the land and whether those old powers are snakes or those old powers are, uh, Indians or whether those old powers are tornadoes, which of course is the great, uh, you know, bete noir of Oklahoma. I mean, we had, uh, Doppler radar. We had, I think, the first non-military Doppler radar in the country because it was so very important in Oklahoma to know where the tornadoes were and what and where they were going. Uh, and so I remember very, very early in my in my life how all the TV news channels would be competing to prove that they had the Doppler radar and that the other guys were just lying. And then eventually everyone has Doppler radar now in the country. But it was it was a big thing. So I think the tornado is another big symbol that you can use. So the theme is that you're living in a land that doesn't really want you there. Right. And that everything that you build in these vast expanses of limestone are really just you're fooling yourself and mm-hmm. then uh, around every corner there is a, a representative of a uh, seer and hostile nature that uh, wants to that doesn't even want to it doesn't care it's nature yeah. it could easily just sort of wipe you out and no one will uh, notice you and i guess also there's a sense of isolation and uh you know in I assume in Oklahoma terms that Oklahoma City is the big city to the yeah. uh, rural dwellers. Unless you're in Tulsa, of course, in which right. case you deny everything that I've said. But you're in Tulsa, so what do you know? So that you could have the sort of rural urban horror where your uh, car uh, battery runs out in the middle of nowhere and then you get your uh, Oklahoma chainsaw massacre. Yes, your, your, your Oklahoma chuds uh, come up. Yeah, one of the things that they have been doing in the city is that they've uh, put water in the in the river. Uh, the Canadian River ran through Oklahoma City. Uh, that's why they put it there. And for my entire childhood and young adult life, if there was water in it, it was only because there'd been a flood. There was never any water. It was like the L.A. River. You had to mow it um, <laughs> to, to keep the grass from growing in the in the bed of the river. Um, but recently, they've they've dredged it out. They've they've built the the river out. They've they've put uh, stone down to to hold the banks up. And they're doing water sports there. They're doing regattas and uh, and uh, crew events in the Oklahoma River, which they've renamed from the Canadian River just because they could. And also, it's n- nowhere near Canada. So <laughs> it's nowhere near Canada. The, but the USGS wouldn't let them rename the whole river, which is jerky, I thought. But anyway, the part through Oklahoma City is called the Oklahoma River now. And um, but again, that's that sort of you know clearly a temporary thing that is resting on this on this land that is um, uh, not super happy with it. Uh, the other thing, of course, you can do is oil as sentient evil force, because Oklahoma is famously one of the oil capitals of the world. Uh, there was and may still be a working oil derrick on the lawn of the state capitol building. Um, uh, they're pumping out the black gold. Um, and Fritz Leiber, of course, in The Black Gondoliers, and more recently other authors have 
pictured the notion that this organic entity that comes down for, to us from before the time of the dinosaurs actually is insinuating itself into our society and into our lives in sort of a vampiric controlling fashion. So I think you could also, in addition to the sand dweller, yig desert half of Oklahoma, or even the Indians who are all very badly treated and moved into Oklahoma by the white man and are uh, getting their Manitou revenge. Those two are both really strong, plus your Wendigo tornadoes. You also have your sentient oil, which is up to no good and has infiltrated its way up into the city. Could even infect a hominid and go on a train ride. It could, um, although there isn't a train in Oklahoma. There used to be an Amtrak through there, but I think that that stopped running. Um, one of the things that uh, when I came back this time, I'd, I'd been gone for about nine years, and I come back, and there's a new skyscraper downtown. They built a 50-story skyscraper that I didn't recognize, and it was the Devon Energy Company, which didn't exist when I left. Um, so just very briefly before we end the segment, uh, what's the number one thing that someone would want to go and see at the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum? They want to go for the Frederick Remington and Charles Russell art. There is a very large collection of that at the Cowboy Hall of Fame. It is, which is what it was called when I was a kid. Um, there is, uh, and from that, the listeners might infer that these are classic uh, artists, Western artists, uh, illustration yes. style Western artists. Yes, and uh, there's a lot of uh, Remington's bronzes here that are some of them are unique, and you can't get them get to see them anywhere else. Uh, they were never. Uh, there, there were no more casts made. These were some of them are working models, and some of them are just ones that were exclusive, and that the Remington family only made one. Uh, there's also a really great uh, gallery of uh, American firearms, uh, the Weitzhofer Gallery, which is worth it. And if you're going to Oklahoma City, I alluded to the Vietnamese uh, community there. Uh, the Vietnamese food in Oklahoma City is spectacular. Uh, the Tex-Mex, of course, in Oklahoma City is second only to San Antonio, and they suddenly have Guatemalan food there, which I went to, uh, and can recommend the horchata latte, among other things. And, of course, Oklahoma City barbecue is sort of halfway between Texas barbecue and Kansas City barbecue, so you can start with Earl's and uh, Leon's and work your way around that. So while you are looking at the um, uh, Remington art, you can be working up an appetite for or really good Tex-Mex in Oklahoma City. Mmm, barbecue makes even the uh, most uh, severe planes seem appealing. So uh, thanks for that report on Oklahoma City, and it's time to uh, turn on our next segment. Welcome again to another installment of Ken and or Robin Talk to Somebody Else. In this case, Ken and Robin are talking to Keith Baker, designer extraordinaire. You know him from Eberron. You know him from Gloom. And uh, at this point, uh, Keith, this is going to drop sort of after your Kickstarter has uh, finished and before you're probably selling your uh, game again. So I thought we would... Uh, look at things in more of a uh, kind of a design theory perspective Absolutely. than a uh, 
and he's selling people something they can currently buy perspective. So, but well, well, I of course you know hope that people will be all shocked by the record-breaking last 24 hours of the Kickstarter when you know leaving exploding kittens in the the, the dust and such. Right. So, the, for the benefit of all those people who already have purchased your game, what is it? What is your new exciting uh, project you have on the go? And as people are hearing this, you're frantically fulfilling. Yes, I'm frantically working on. Uh, so. Having done Eberron, a, a big role-playing thing for Dungeons & Dragons, and Gloom, a storytelling card game in which you want your family to die, uh, Phoenix falls somewhere in between. So it is Phoenix Dawn Command, and it is a fantasy role-playing game which uses cards to resolve situations instead of dice, and in which your character is probably going to die, because that's actually how you improve. So for this game, what would you uh, categorize as your design goals for it when you first went in? What was the initial seed that led you to want to do it? And what, what made something part of this game and what made it things that you took out as you worked on So the, the very first seed, because it was totally one of those games that just had that moment that made me say, oh, I want to do a thing with this. What is it? Was this idea of a game in which your character dying was actually how you grew stronger? And part of it is because death is a really hard thing to, to really use in role-playing. Either you're in a world where it's the end, in which case, okay, nobody wants to die, that's the end of your story, or you've got a cleric in the party who can raise the dead and it means your character's out of play for 15 minutes and has no real impact at all. And so having had this, this sort of core idea of, okay, death is actually a thing that has an importance in the game, it means that we can have games where you can have these dramatic people making last stands or people making sacrifices in a way that these are moments it's really hard to have in other games, but that are really satisfying. Um, so starting with that core, death is a thing that actually happens you know, in the game, and then building out from that, but how does that work? How do you keep tension if, uh, if characters know they're going to come back? What is the world around it? Uh, and all of those things ended up being very, very important. So the uh, the mechanic is, you say, card-based instead of dice. Right. Is there a reason you went uh, back to the Falkenstein well instead of good old D12s? Well, the funny thing is when we started, we were actually planning it just to be a regular pen and paper game. And I'd been playing around with some dice, I mean, some card-based ideas. And as it turned out, it ended up really synchronizing with this because part of the point of the cards is you have a hand of cards that you play to accomplish things in the same sort of situations you roll and die in other uh, circumstances. Mm -hmm. But what it means is that the player is very much in control of their action. Right. Uh, that I know it's not I'm going to make my dramatic last stand, make my you know speech on my ancestors, and then, oh, I rolled a one. It didn't really pan right. out the yeah. way I wanted. I know if I can pull this off and what it will cost me to do it. And part of the point of the game is you have certain resources that you can use to exceed your limits but when you run out, you die. So it comes back to the player saying, I know I can pull this off, but well, I, I might end up killing myself to do it or at least pushing myself to the edge. Because that was one of the things that really worked about Falkenstein for me mm -hmm. was that mm -hmm. the cards really drove that, uh, well, I'm going to be beaten early because I'm playing my crummy right. cards, but right. then at the end, jack and ace, baby, suck and, it. And it is exactly that, of the point being that from... Turn to turn, there's a random element mm -hmm. of what cards do I happen to draw. But on the other hand, overall, I know what I have. You know, again, yeah, I get right. a handful of big cards. Am I blowing them right now, or am I going to hold them off? And conversely, when you have your hand of bad cards, 
So this is essentially my low role. Then what it means is, well, I'm not going to try and make my big dramatic speech and do my big thing, but what can I do with this? And you can How play into the fiction in a way, because exactly. you can say, my character is tired, he's, you know, dug in, he's waiting for right. rescue, he's, you know, uh, calling on air support, or he's desperately taking, you know, boat, um, uh, biotox injections to lever himself back into a position where he can fight again or whatever, but you can play into that fiction of being relatively powerless. And that's exactly sort of the point. It is one of these basic things that players can handle failure more easily if they themselves are in some way driving that failure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if they're explaining it, just as you did there, somehow it doesn't feel so much like failure. It's not like hosed. And, and I'm surprised. I mean, I've run around 90 sessions of this game so far, and people die a lot because, I mean, it is a game where the whole point is the odds, the stakes are high enough. The stories it, can drive that. It, it would be disappointing if you didn't get to die in a, right. a demo because that's what you're going to show what the game's off. About. And yet at the same time, almost always it feels like this is essentially a dramatic thing they are doing. They are making this last stand. They are choosing this moment. And it feels good as opposed to, oh, the orc got a critical hit and mm-hmm. fine, well, okay, yeah, I'm yeah. out for a while. It's not whether you die, but how well you die. It's exactly right. It's it's that it's a, essentially a resource. And a lot of people say, well, why wouldn't my character just throw myself in front of a car or stab myself in the head a bunch of times? Within the context of the thing, missions are usually time-sensitive. The stakes are high. You don't want to just die. But when the moment is right, you know, it's it's something that uh, if it'll make a difference, it feels feels good. So people have asked me, could I just use this system in Eberron? And my whole sort of thing is, you could. You know, there's nothing stopping you. But to have this work, you need a scenario in which it feels important enough and dire enough that, again, throwing away one of your lives, because you only get a certain number feels like the dramatically appropriate thing to do. And you also have an interesting solution for the whole uh, first act of an adventure where normally it's like you get an assignment from the guy in the hat and then you go and get information and you finally arrive at the place. And here, you're just paratrooped in. Right. And in fact, you know, often missions will essentially start with, uh, you know, you getting a briefing. This is what you're going to need to do. But I do like occasionally in some of them to literally just start you, this is the scene where you're fighting the zombies. And once you're done with that, let's take a pause and say, how did you end up here? You know, what was the briefing? You know, just because it's sometimes fun to start with the, and then we sort of circle back around to, and here we are again with the zombies. Yes. But as you My say, character wouldn't do, the zombies, uh-uh. Yeah. But as you say, it is exactly, the, the fiction allows for people to be dropped into a situation. I like to say it's a little in flavor like aliens. Yeah. Where you're the best we've got, we're throwing you into this thing, but you don't know exactly what you're getting into, and there's a pretty good chance you might not be, you know, equal to the task, and you're just going to have to do the best you can. So does Phoenix Dawn Command have a world with it, or is it just about playing last-ditch situations, and there's a bunch of last-ditch, you know, playsets or last-ditch series pitches? It, it is a world. So basically, there's a world with it, and there is... Uh, the initial thing is shipping with um, se- you know a seven-part adventure path, uh, but it is also something you can build your own scenarios with. And each, because they're missions, you could just grab any one of those pieces and just run it, mm-hmm. and you know just have characters pumped up to the level they would need to be to be in it. Um, but it is a world. There is a history. You know, part of the the point of the story is that this is a world where terrible things are happening all over the world. All these supernatural threats are coming out. 
And we don't know within the fiction, why is this happening? How are these things even connected? The skeleton army in the South, what does it have to do with this zombie outbreak or these werewolves? And part of what that means, someone described it, I like the analogy, is uh, smoke jumping. That it's, we can drop you in. There's a fire there. We're dropping you into it. And the thing is, you can put it out, and that's great. But on the other hand, if you don't figure out why it started or why are we having fires, there's just going to be another fire. So part of the driving thing of the, the sort of overall story is can you understand things? So it's not just can you beat up a monster. Can you figure out what is the cause of this monster? So you mentioned that it started out in your mind as being a conventional dice-driven mm -hmm, game, mm -hmm. and then you switched to the cards. Can you sort of unpack the process of coming to that discovery? What led you to implement that, and, and how did that change your design process? So part of it was that uh, my friend Dan Garrison and I had been playing around with card-based games already, and he had come up with a sort of tarot-themed game that it was essentially you are a people who can alter fate, and you would lay down tarot cards, and that would allow you to alter fate in some way. And that didn't really fit here, but I really liked the way that it gave players narrative control. And to me, again, with Phoenix, part of this point is if you just have a totally random factor like dice, it's hard to have that I am making this dramatic choice for this to be my, my moment. And there are ways you can do it. You can give them action points. You can give them something. But... I really liked this this way that cards gave the narrative control to the player, and so I was looking at it and saying, I really think there's a way this would work here. And initially, as I say, Dan was like, oh, I don't know, I think that's a different game. And I was like, well, let me try this, and, and just sort of prototyped up a uh, a version of it. Right, because a, a, a handful of cards that allow you to do certain things that you haven't done yet are basically foreshadowing in your hand. Right. And, and it's exactly that. It's that point of, from turn to turn, there is a random element but it means that, again, the player can just look at their hand and know what they're capable of. And what we found is it's a great game for people without a lot of role-playing experience because all you really need to know about is what do I have in my hand. This is what I can do right now, and I don't really have to worry about uh, anything else. And the system is a very you know, flexible night sort of system that is basically tell me what you want to do, and I will tell you, what, you know, which of our basic suits does that fall into, how much are you going to need to get it. And so it's intended to be very sort of story-driven uh, as opposed to like lots of charts or rules or things like that you have to look up. Now, other than having dice, was there an example of something that you thought at one point that you wanted to have in the game that you wound up cutting because it didn't actually, when you looked at it again, fit your design goals? It's a very interesting question. See, I'm trying to think. I mean, we did reduce the number of lives that characters got. Uh, in part because, you know, building a little more tension and sort of how far can a character go before the cards you're adding and such don't feel dramatic enough. But that wasn't a, a huge um, change. So, you know, there's nothing else I can really think of on that thing. There's certainly other things we added. Uh, I added a mechanic that I first saw a version of in uh, a game Will Heinmarch did, Always Never Now, which is a cyberpunk thing he did that I love. Uh, and I understand this is similar to Fate as well, where it's basically when you have a scene, so there's a fight and you're in a tavern, uh, putting out on the table a list of things that are there. There is a plate glass window. There is a roaring fire. Uh, there is a bar stool. And basically... 
if the players work this into the narrative of their actions, it benefits them. They get to draw another card. Mm -hmm. And uh, to me, and there's another thing within the cards itself that, that sort of ties into that sort of thing, of what I like is story hooks that help a player tell a story. Because it amazes me how often, when I look back at my history of D&D, how many times I've been in a bar fight and never occurred to someone, hey, we could shove a guy into the, the fireplace or, you know, push him through the window. But every bar fight scene you see in a movie is going to have someone knock through the window or something like that. Um, but as I say, that was more something that it was something when I played with Will that really inspired me. And I knew I wanted to work something like that uh, into Phoenix. When you've got a game that is uh, combat forward, like mm -hmm. Phoenix Dawn Command is, because these are this is a game about you know desperate men in desperate situations, desperately fighting desperate monsters. Right. Um, you got a combat heavy game like this, or a combat forward game like this. The temptation has to be to make the combat mechanically uh, rich, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, you can you can have called shots, you can pull the guy's arm off, you can do targeted auto fire, whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. But you wouldn't want to play a game of, you know, Starship Troopers where it's, you know, okay, roll three to kill the bug, you right, kill the bug. Exactly. Right. You want to have that lived feel of combat, the the, the umami of, of combat rules. How do you go from a relatively uh, granular um, system like cards, how do you get that richness of combat? Or did you say, well, we'll hope that the narration can support it and move on? Is How deep do you go it's, into the it's definitely, wound, into the wound yeah. chart without being role master about right. it? Right. It's definitely both. I mean, that is the thing, is it's definitely, we don't go too deep into the rules, and we essentially use cards to track relative locations. So there is a tactical aspect to it. But it is nowhere, you don't have like a grid map, you're not tracking your five feet of movement or something like that. And similarly, um, the mechanics are relatively straightforward. How many cards can you play of what suit? How are you uh, sort of affecting the creatures? Uh, but you end up having sort of different styles, you know, and it's which style am I using uh, as you're developing your character, sort of each school does things their own way. The the healer type character, uh, there's no magic wounds just go away like a normal cure spell and a thing because that would wouldn't help with their attention. But the healer type character can basically take their allies' wounds onto themselves and then pass them onto their enemies. And so you have this sort of, I'm fighting in a very different way. I don't do that much damage, mm -hmm. but on the other hand, this is how we do wound management. Uh, we have certain schools. Schools are like our classes. Schools are the different types of characters. And we have one school in particular that is much more resource management-y. It's sort of like a chi-based sort of system, right. where as I am fighting, I am allocating my energy to different things. On the other hand, you also have just the big, you know, bitter guy who is just basically about the, I get to play more cards and do more damage and do more things. And that's where the narrative comes in of, because you are describing your action, and sometimes gaining benefit from the description, it livens it up a little more than just the straight playing the numbers. I kind of like the idea of each character class getting to... Uh, character class drives how complex your combat is. And, well, yeah. I is, mean, Which is true in, in regular D&D in a lot of cases as well. And that's exactly the idea, is yeah. there are certain schools... So the Durant school is both very straightforward in how they do things, and they are the character that's hardest to kill. So they are the easiest character when someone's coming in from having played D&D &D and isn't totally sold on this whole, so I'm okay and I'm going to die about things. Well, okay, here's a fairly straightforward character and you're hard to kill, you know. 
whereas, as you say, going into other types of characters, they are much more, you know, the bitter is stronger the closer they are to death. And so they want to be living as close to the edge as they can without going over the edge. And they are probably going to be the first to die. And it's just you're going to make a really big splash doing it. Um, and so, again, there's that, definitely that variety of complexity and that variety of play style uh, for each of them. So have you uh, had uh, outside playtesting rounds at this point? We've started with that, yes. We do have people playtesting just around. So it's early days yet, so you're not getting a lot of feedback? Uh, we've certainly, so we basically got a lot of feedback through the sessions that I've been doing myself and, and with my co-designer. And as I said, just over this month, we've started just sending it out to uh, to other groups, uh, and we're still getting feedback. So it's too early to ask you what the most surprising feedback is from outside groups. Certainly, I mean, certainly I can just say from the initial testing we were doing, uh, it was one of these little light bulb moments of part of our combat system involved actually doing division. You would hit a monster, subtract their defense from your attack, and then divide to determine the amount of damage needed to them. Nobody gets division. Nobody division likes division. Terrible, no. <laughs> terrible thing to have in the game. So we took that out. Basically, every playtest session, at least one person would say, I didn't get the math. And so we took that out, changed something, and I've never, no one has ever complained ever since. Oh, I missed the division. Yeah. But it was, it was, was just one of those things of, I definitely learned algebra from playing the hero system. Yeah. Right. And and so it's one of those as and the everybody designer, who likes algebra is still playing the hero system. Yes, uh, like the as, old GURPS vehicles. Take the cube root. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> and and so as the designer, this was something where I'm like, this is a very simple formula. It's very and you know seemed perfectly straightforward. And then you play it with people and discover, yeah, no, oh. it's just more than people. You know. So back to your thing, that was a point of yes, this was too much math. Right. You know, this didn't feel uh, feel like fun. And, and so we changed that. You know, that's one thing where, again, that was, uh, we did a big dramatic change to our sort of math and our numbers and things, and that's been a huge improvement. Well, uh, thanks a lot for talking to us today, Keith, and uh, best of luck as you uh, turn your design into a finished product that will land with a funk at people's doorstops. Well, thank you very much. The furtive whispers, the darting eyes, that guy over there who looks like maybe he's an alien reptoid, indicate that we've once more wandered into the paranoid depths of Conspiracy Corner. And this week we're here to talk about a breaking conspiracy theory, and this concerns the no-doubt sinister closings of select Walmart locations in the southern U.S., specifically in Pico Rivera, California, Brandon, Florida, Livingston and Midland in Texas, and to get back to our Oklahoma horror theme, Tulsa. Tulsa! Yeah, so uh, what has happened is that Walmart has closed five of its large stores, putting a bunch of people out of work and saying that this is because they have to address plumbing problems, which have shown up uh, with mysterious simultaneity. can't possibly be the fact that they might have been all built at the same time by the same contractor and have similar issues. Pshaw! <laughs> That's the... I can't even believe that you would suggest falling for that, Robin. Yeah, I, uh, and uh, so, you know, any 
unexplained phenomenon, even a phenomenon as mundane as some store closings in an era when the big box store is under increasing retail pressure. Must it must be something sinister going on there. Uh, people in the Pico uh, Rivera location suggest that this is punishment for union talk, but of course that doesn't explain the closings elsewhere. <laughs> one, of, one of the most popular theories, however, dovetails with the uh, paranoia on the rightward side of the conspiracy fringe about the military's jade helm exercises. Uh, Ken, what can you tell us about uh, how uh, this one conspiracy concern is now feeding into this other real-world detail? The jade helm exercises, for those who are not familiar, is a very large-scale special forces exercise in which the special forces goes through a bunch of different mini war games or tactical war games but over a very large geographical setting. And because we have a country that is literally the size of most uh, theaters, we can do these sorts of very large-scale uh, war games. And it happens uh, with the special forces, especially in an especially dispersed fashion, because they're not practicing, you know, driving tanks across Nevada. They're practicing getting into or out of somewhere or a helicopter attacking a building. Helicopter, you say? Helicopter, it's, I say. It surely must be a conspiracy if there's helicopters if there's helicopters. Involved. I don't even know what people did for conspiracies before Leonardo da Vinci invented the helicopter. They just sat around and were sad, I guess. Uh, anyway, but the um, but if you look at the map of the Jade Helm exercises, they've sort of defined certain states as uh, bad guy states uh, to represent bad guy countries so that the special forces operation has to be conducted under sort of um, uh, more security and secrecy than the launch, which would be from a good guy state. And if you look at the map, it's pretty clear that Texas is playing Iran, uh, Southern California is playing Lebanon, and Utah got the short straw in this LARP and is playing Syria. And then I think Arizona and New Mexico are sort of Iraq and Kurdistan. And if you just sort of look at the Jade Helm map and map it onto the Middle East that way, you have a pretty good idea of what it's actually doing. But the thing is, when you print a big map and say the states colored red are enemy states it gets people all exercised there in the great republic of especially texas especially given the particular <laughs> states that just happen to have the matching terrain yes, desired right and, and so they get all, all patriotically exercised about uh, the uh the the federal government coming in and, and declaring them enemy states just for some stupid old war game and that is what has now fed and implying that they look like Iran. <laughs> implying that uh, that they're sort of Iran shaped. E. Now it's like when you always have to play the cleric, I guess, and they're and they're just mad that they they wanted to they wanted to be Turkey for one time. But anyway, the the the, the assignment of this uh, of your LARP character happened uh, when you were out of the room. The G you come back. The GMs told you you're Iran and Syria, and they get all steamed about it. And this has got people in Texas already sort of head up. And now that we have mysterious um, uh, Walmart closings, we know that, of course, those are going to be used as uh, holding pens for American patriots rounded up in Jade Helm. And that's why they would close a Walmart as opposed to, I don't know, use, say, the United States military base in Texas as a holding pen or the federal prisons in Texas as holding pens or any of the other completely legitimate holding pens they already have in Texas, for God's sakes. <laughs> the Walmarts already have sporting goods stores where you can store everyone's guns when you take them away. That's 
That's just obvious math there. Yeah, I, I kind of like the, you know, the, the, the new, um, uh, I guess this is working with the Republican Congress that when they take the, the guns away, they put them back in a sporting goods store to be sold to other people. Yes. It's, it's just basic <laughs> capitalism. Yes. The, the real fear is, is now, you know, that they know who's in charge. The real fear is that the government will take away their guns and then sell them back to them again at a premium. At a premium. Now that, now that Obama's raised the price of guns. Exactly. It's, uh, By it's increasing it's, the demand it, for it's guns. It's so clever that it must be true or something like that. So anyway, that's, uh, be- because Texas is already a ferment with the Jade Helm, uh, LARP activity, they are now, um, uh, extra fermented, I guess, once this, uh, Walmart thing dropped, right? Now, an extra, Philip on the theory. Uh, another version of it is that these Walmarts are being converted into the entry point for the vast underground network that the government is building to, uh, I guess, this sort of dovetails with kind of mole man paranoia. So in this variant, they are the uh, sort of staging areas for uh, the underground government beneath your good, honest feet and, and soil, uh, which I think gives us uh, something that is a little more genrefied if we actually want to uh, play with this, because even the, the idea of a, you know, interior takeover of the, a, a military coup within America or a government or whatever you would call it uh, is still kind of mundane. But once you get tunnels underground, uh, now you're cooking with gas. So now you can start thinking of who might be down in the earth that the uh, government is tunneling down to uh meet and provide comfy furniture for yeah there's a there's a thriving uh sub literature in secret base and tunnel construction uh i think a guy named commander x has put together some really good work involving lots of badly uh, duplicated plans for nuclear boring and tunneling machines well if your last name is x you sort of have to go into that yeah theory. right it's like if your name is felix faust you have to become a supervillain. you can't just you know Dude, kids' uh, parties. Yeah, his brother Doug Feist, totally straight life. He's an insurance adjuster. That's right. He's got no problem. He's like, come on, Felix, get with the program. Um, but the uh, but the secret uh, tunnel business has, that goes back at least I think to the seventies. And so once more, we see that we have sort of a pre-existing uh, substrate, as you say, of paranoia onto which this new event can lock. And that seems to happen an awful lot with the. Um, uh, with the ongoing uh, sort of paranoias, you get the the sort of uh, toxophobia paranoia when they have the theory that these WalMarts had bought food from the Fukushima uh, region of Japan during the meltdown, and so they had them shut down so as to hide all the radiation and do the decontamination. Although, of course, why the Walmart in Livingston, Texas, is buying food from Japan. And the Walmart in, say, San Francisco isn't is an interesting question. Uh, well, it was obviously a, a test-marketed product. Mm-hmm. We do know that uh, different products are initially introduced in different small areas that fit particular demographic profiles. So um, all we need to justify the radioactive food theory is that, uh, you know, it was some new form of, you know, uh, seaweed chips or something, and those are, were, were the ones that were contaminated. And uh, to genre that up, of course, you could... Uh, have these uh, the things that cause uh, mutant outbreaks or uh, that... Uh, or that make uh, kaiju happen, like in the host, yeah. which was made with that uh, contaminated water. Yeah, they turn you into a, uh, a, a sort of an incubation system for... Uh, uh, maybe it's a sushi. Maybe they have the little uh, orange eggs on the outside now have little baby kaiju in them. And if you uh, eat too many of them from these different Walmarts, suddenly you're the... Uh, uh, the 
nourishment for a growing baby cashew. Exactly. Um, which the government, of course, is going to use in the uh, roundup of Americans, no doubt. Or, or the kaiju outbreak will be the excuse that the government will use to declare martial law. And that it, it all ties in together. Um, so how do we want to uh, use this sort of uh, idea of an apparently mundane series of store closings and turn them into a, a genre story? What seems the most uh, attractive? Is it the uh, tunnel story where you're infiltrating the government conspiracy in order to get down there and find out uh, who the mole people are that they're rendezvousing with and why? Or is it this kaiju one? Or is there other uh, stuff you want to play with? I think a lot of it depends on sort of the, the genre of the game that you're already playing or, or what feel you're going for, because I think the mole people have sort of a, a higher um, a madness degree than the kaiju, weirdly enough, uh, that if you are positing a secret network of government tunnels that runs literally, you know, on an interstate level, that's sort of high UFO cult weirdness that those tunnels have to have been bored out by, you know, aliens or, or, um, uh, reptoid civilization that was centered around, uh, Grand Canyon. Whereas the kaiju is sort of realistic seeming because it's just one step. It's just, all right, there's sushi that turns you into a kaiju. That's literally the only thing you have to accept. So a lot of it is going to play towards your realism. I think that, uh, it's kind of fun with something like this to throw it into your game and, make whatever the players decide is right. I think this is the exact kind of thing, and we and we can see how it feeds into so many different paranoias, that maybe the thing to do is just take this and let the players pick what they would like to fight by what they fear to fight. Uh, another thing is you could go into sort of more of a supernatural direction by having it be a ghost infestation, and uh, a someone is... Uh, there's a shooting incident at uh, one of the Walmart locations, but uh, ghosts don't necessarily follow the same laws of causality that we do. And since these Walmarts are all built to the same plan, they're essentially identical, that the ghosts are able to transmigrate and start to haunt other similar-looking Walmarts. So perhaps uh, before the action of the game begins, there was a failed exorcism attempt at this sort of ground zero one. And now uh, the company is having to close more and more locations when the ghost manifestations uh, start up. And so your job is to find out what the and here's the part where we have to scrape off the serial numbers and change the name of the corporation but perhaps the corporation decides that there's some sort of power or weaponizing that they can do with ghosts or perhaps here's where you get your military aspect that they've uh, have actually been commandeered by the military and they're trying to uh, since now there's reliable ghost manifestations in five discrete locations. They're trying to study them in order to figure out how to use ghost powers and turn it into a weapon. And so uh, you are either one of the research scientists uh, or the, you're part of the team inside the uh, Walmart as you're trying to do this. And then, you know, oddly enough, turns out to be a bad idea. And suddenly the team is uh, in trouble or you're an outside agency trying to figure out uh, what the uh, corporate conspiracy is to harness ghost power. You're sort of um, uh, flipping the script on Ghostbusters, and you play the good guy DE, um, uh, EPA agents coming in to see what, <laughs> what what's up when people are trying to harness ghosts in a Walmart. Exactly. Mr. Stapoft is right on the shelf, people. He's right there. He's next to the sushi from Fukushima. You can't help but think of him. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that that promotion may have been a problem. Um, <laughs> it's got New York destroying flavor. The... 
other thing you can do is because you've got a bunch of different locations and it's all the same company, you can say maybe there was a guy who worked as a middle manager or a troubleshooter uh, for all of them, or he got himself assigned to all of them, depending on how, uh, you know, if he's haunted or if he's a sorcerer. Um, and each of those places is part of a big like a goetic sigil or something. And if you draw the, uh, connect them on a map, it, I don't think that's going to make a particularly good pentagram because Livingston and Midland are too close to each other, but it'll make something once you draw it, I'm sure. And you can start deciding where the next Walmart is that he would have to be to finish the design, or you'd have to decide, or, or maybe you have to investigate these Walmarts to see which, uh, part of the rod of seven parts he put down in what part of the store, and each one of them has got a, a, a separate ghost or a, or a demon or a, or a chud uh, protecting it. And maybe what the whole thing turns out to be is an esoterror op, where the esoterrorists have faked this ghost uh, activity or faked this magical um, uh, cult uh, activity in these Walmarts, and it's the action of shutting down the Walmarts and trying to do the veil out that they are actually counting on to, you know, summon up mole people from the tunnels under the earth or create kaiju or whatever it is uh, based on the paranoia and use that as a way of uh, sort of preemptively damaging all future veilouts. Because if they break this veilout, no one will ever believe the government when they say we had to close that store for a gas leak or a plumbing thing. They'll say, oh, this is a Livingston Walmart situation all over again. And the company, instead of uh, taking opportunistic advantage of uh, spontaneous haunting might in fact since big box stores are in trouble decided to uh, try and work uh, a ritual magic in order to uh, restore their retail chain to its former glory by digging up uh, their uh, founder uh, Jim Malton at, uh, <laughs> at, at Malwart and uh, they've uh, taken pieces of him and done uh, rituals with bits of his body at five different locations, uh, five sort of, uh, these have special numerological significance. And then, of course, something has gone wrong and they've had to, uh, or something hasn't yet gone, gone wrong. They've shut them down in order to perform this uh, ritual. And you are coming in from the outside to uh, prevent this because, of course, it will have worse effects than merely... Uh, restoring consumer demand it will actually uh, if successful begin to uh, change the uh, populace of the southern u.s into uh, uh, rabid consumer zombies and you uh, uh, then they will all sort of flock to the mall and the idea is just to make people go to the mall and buy stuff but it transforms them and has them uh, storm the malls uh, dawn of the dead style so you uh you want to stop that before it finishes happening. Or the act of them taking advantage of these savings that are too good to be real is the act of them actually selling part of their soul to hell. And what's happened is that um, uh, the, the guys who are using Jim Moulton's body as their um, uh, necromantic uh, sigils, they're making a deal with hell to be a supplier. And just like when they make a deal with any of these guys, you know, we're not sure is hell getting screwed or is Malwart getting screwed. And it's, uh, the only sure thing that we have because it's a horror game is that the guys who go in and say, what's that? An iPad for $90. I've got to buy that. That's the guy who's really being screwed because part of his, uh, part of that money part or part of that hell money literally is going to the devil. And, uh, they're getting their their uh, fiendish hooks in on the fine people of Midland, Texas, and Brandon, Florida. So, uh, listeners, if you're uh, listening to this on an iPhone uh, purchased at a 
a big box store that uh, recently had to close for mysterious reasons, uh, you uh, you might want to have an exorcism performed or uh, bathe in some holy water or something. And uh, while you're doing that, we can declare uh, this episode at an end. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Help us store our hominids by hitting the donate button at Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff.com. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or proximity to Texas by advertising with us. Join such illustrious donors as... Sean Murphy. And Cody Naples. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.